Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to the seventh episode of SFD. Last time we were talking about the history of Iran right up until 1950, and this time around we're getting right up to when everything begins to fall apart in 1953. I thought we were going to make it all the way to the coup in one big push, but things got long on me and I'm trying to keep these episodes around an hour, so we'll be getting to Kermit Roosevelt and Operation Ajax in a couple of weeks. I moved to Guadalajara and joined a baseball team since the last episode, so everything is, predictably, running behind schedule, but I'll try to keep the episodes and blog stuff coming more or less regularly. Alright, you guys know the drill. I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. ¿Para qué sirve entonces la civilización? ¿Para qué sirve la conciencia del hombre? ¿Para qué sirven las Naciones Unidas? But these differences were all forgotten in one unshakable unity of determination to find a way to end war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. Across the world, we're hunting down the killers, and we're showing them the definition of American justice. There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. We have an obligation to be of help where we can to freedom fighters, lovers of freedom and democracy from Afghanistan to Nicaragua. The United States has no intention of determining the precise form of Iraq's new government. That choice belongs to the Iraqi people. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. Before we pop back into it, let's get up to speed real quick with what happened last time. Reza Shah, the first monarch in the new Pahlavi dynasty and a strong man at the head of a powerful military, unseats the old Qajar Shahs and goes about centralizing and modernizing the Iranian state. He's pretty successful, but also pretty brutal, and when the British and Russians occupy the country and throw him out during World War II, nobody really mourns the loss. His son, Mohammad Reza Shah, comes to the throne. And in the post-war, Iranian politics is split between the court faction and the parliamentarians left over from the original constitutional revolution at the start of the century. The British, meanwhile, use bribery and dirty dealing to suborn whatever faction, usually the court and the Shah, to protect their massive oil interests in the form of the Anglo-Iranian oil company. In the 1950s, the British sense trouble brewing. So they do the right thing, which is to offer new terms for their long-standing and incredibly unfair oil deal with Iran. Unfortunately, they also do the wrong thing, which is to offer really terrible new terms for their long-standing and incredibly unfair oil deal with Iran. The British and the Shah burn through a series of prime ministers who are totally unable to bring the new deal, called the Supplemental Agreement, to a vote in the Iranian parliament, called the Majlis. Right now, in 1950, General Ali Razmara is the premier, and he's doggedly working away at trying to get the thing passed. 
In an attempt to smooth the road for him, the Shah is trying to rig a parliamentary election to stack the Majlis. One man stands up to oppose him and calls a protest that becomes a major occupation of the palace quarter in Tehran. That man was Mohammad Mossadegh. So now we get to Mohammed Mossadegh, not quite the last, but easily the most important character in the story we're telling. Mossadegh, and I'm using the most standard transliteration of the name, although in older, especially Western sources, you'll hear Mossadegh. Mossadegh came from the old stock of Iranian politicians. His mother was a Qajar princess and his father a nobleman who had served one of the Qajar shahs as finance minister for decades. He was born on the 18th of May, 1882, and apparently immediately trained in his father's profession. By the time he was 16, he'd mastered enough of the late Qajar's arcane and convoluted tax system to serve as the chief auditor of his home province. And from then until the end, he worked in public service when and as long as he was able. A European who visited him at the time wrote that, quote, Among men of intelligence and learning, his decorum cannot be surpassed. He speaks, behaves, and receives people with respect, humility, and courtesy, but without undermining his own eminence and dignity. In his dealings with other people, he has shown warm human feeling. Such an impressive young man is bound to become one of the great ones, unquote. Mossadegh continued his education abroad, first at Sciences Po, the premier university of political sciences in Paris, and later at Neuchâtel in Switzerland, where he stood for a PhD in law. For the rest of his life, Mossadegh split his time between Neuchâtel, Tehran, and the small village he owned as a hereditary estate named Ahmadabad. He participated in the Constitutional Revolution and got elected to the Majlis in the early 1920s, but he had a pretty immediate falling out with Reza Shah over who, the monarch or parliament, would rule. He spent most of the years under Reza Shah at his village in Ahmadabad, practicing experimental agriculture and reforming village life like Constantine Levin in Anna Karenina. When the British deposed the Shah in the early years of the war, Mossadegh was singularly poised to return to the political scene. He was remembered as an incorruptible politician, something that Kinzer notes made him popular with the masses and deeply suspect to the elites who had always used position for plunder. And he was untainted by any association with the regime of Reza Shah, having spent those years in exile in the interior. He ran in the first free election in decades in 1943 and came into office in the Majlis with more total votes than any other candidate. Politically, he had two positions which he never softened. The first was that the Shah should reign and not rule. From Abrahamian, quote, in many ways, he was an Iranian version of a 19th century English Whig. Contrary to his reputation as an angry Anglophobe, he had a great admiration for Britain precisely because he saw its constitutional monarchy as the integral part of its parliamentary democracy. Later on, unable to distinguish between his opposition to British imperialism and admiration for their constitutionalism, American policymakers and historians found him erratic and inconsistent. The problem, however, lay less in Mossadegh than in American perceptions." Unquote. Mossadegh's second long-held position was negative equilibrium. The Iranian strategy in dealing with its two imperial neighbors, since the Qajars lost the ability to fight them, had been this thing called positive equilibrium. If the British established some toehold in Iran, then the leaders in Tehran would work on a deal with the Russians, balancing the two great powers against each other. 
Mossadegh reportedly compared the idea of positive equilibrium to trying to balance out the loss of one of your arms by lopping off the other. That is effective in some sense, but less than desirable, and something that Mossadegh thought would lead to wholesale partition of the country, what the British and Russians had been contemplating in the 1907 agreement and the secret Constantinople treaties. His response was the opposite. By preserving strict neutrality and non-alignment, he'd keep the powers out. If the English hadn't gotten the D'Arcy concession, then the Russians wouldn't have been angling to tear off their own hunk of the country. And if the British weren't worried about increased Russian influence, they'd lay off too. Mossadegh wanted to divest the country of foreigners, and that was both to be his legacy and his political downfall. Mossadegh was tragic in the way that many mid-century radicals and reformers in the Third World were tragic, from Arbenz to Sukarno. They looked to the institutions and histories of the colonial powers with great admiration and expected, as they were emerging from colonial life or the authoritarian governments that followed it, that those same powers might turn an approving eye on a native implementation of the structures that they held so dear in Europe. But this was almost never the case, and Democrats and parliamentarians at home were more than happy being oppressors and autocrats abroad, as long as oil or bananas or sugarcane were extracted and vague, amorphous communism held at bay. After World War II, the democratic system that had existed in form but was not being truly respected emerged in full bloom. Mohammed Mossadegh has been largely forgotten by now, but in his time, he was a huge titanic figure. So, getting back to where we were, the Shah tries to rig an election with the British in late 1949. And Mossadegh stages a protest that gets him to back down, ensuring that overt measures, like separated yes and no ballot boxes, don't get implemented, even though there's not much Mossadegh or his supporters could do about landlords and British-controlled tribes in the South. Now, there are two things that happen in the immediate aftermath. The first is that the Shah takes a much-publicized trip to the United States. The U.S. in the post-war is, as a rule, interested in any country that has a strong socialist or communist party, and in Iran, that's the Tuda. Iran's doubly important, too, because of its oil reserves, so Truman and company are happy to host the Shah in October 1949. Dean Acheson, Truman's Secretary of State, was interested in giving the Shah aid that would help him to rule and thereby stave off the perceived threat of a takeover by the Tuda. But, from Kinzer now, quote, The Shah insisted repeatedly that what Iran needed most was a bigger army and more weapons. He asked for tanks, anti-tank weapons, trucks, and a large stores of ammunition, as well as money to pay for tens of thousands of more soldiers. Under the Iranian constitution, he controlled the military but nothing else, so a strong army was key to his personal power. When his hosts tried to steer their conversations to the subject of Iran's social needs, the Shah lost interest. Acheson warned him to pay attention to what had happened in China, where the nationalist leader Chiang Kai-shek had enjoyed vast military superiority, but had lost power to ragtag communists because he had sought a purely military solution, unquote. The talks broke down and the Shah went home empty-handed. What you should take away from that conversation is how clear-eyed Acheson and the rest of the Truman administration was about what the problems were on the ground in Iran and how they could be solved. If you're out to fight communism, they needed to solve social problems. And we'll see this kind of straightforward thinking from the U.S. right up until the Eisenhower administration takes over. The second thing that happened in the aftermath of Mossadegh's protest was the formation of what became his party, the National Front. As Abrahamian and others point out, the National Front never reached a level of organization as formal as a real party like the Tuda, and as long as Mossadegh was at his head, it was plagued by defections and internal strife. 
But over that same period, it also contained the very best of Iranian politics. The founding members of the National Front came out of the Iran Party and the Engineers Association, don't remember that name, and a host of other groups who were characterized first by their nationalism and second by their middle-class origins. They were young, educated in Britain and France through government scholarships, and professional lawyers and economists and engineers. The National Front quickly went on to absorb the membership of the Lawyers Guild, the University Professors Association, the Engineers Association, and the Union of Bazaar Guilds and Tradesmen, which is to say that it picked up every constitutionalist in Iran outside of the Tuda, and probably more than a few from that party who weren't diehard socialists. But Mossadegh's base of support went further than the members of the National Front. A British diplomat named Sam Fall later wrote that he enjoyed, quote, tremendous support because he was a brilliant demagogue and a sincere and honest patriot. He was nonviolent and really was a powerhouse because people loved him, wanted him, and saw him as a sort of Iranian Mahatma Gandhi, unquote. The question will come up later whether Mossadegh was a straight demagogue, a populist in the democratic vein, or even a mildly conservative democrat pushed to the limit by circumstances. But if you have to label him a demagogue, he's a demagogue in the Bernie Sanders or William Jennings Bryan vein. A demagogue devoted to the masses, rather than devoted to the use of the masses, and one who wanted to work within his democracy rather than to tear it down, like Mussolini. So the National Front joined the Tuda as the Iranian party of the left, opposed to the Shah, the British, and their wealthy landlord and capitalist allies on the right. But through 1949 and the early 1950s, there was much distrust between the Tuda and the National Front. The Tuda considered the newcomers to be the local representatives of the international capitalist bourgeoisie, meaning America and its potential interests in Iranian oil. The National Front, meanwhile, distrusted the socialists' ties to the Soviets and doubted the older party's nationalist credentials. Both Mossadegh and his party picked up quick steam, though, and according to a memo from the British Embassy, quote, By mid-June 1950, the National Front had acquired a moral ascendancy over the Majlis and had achieved this simply by playing constantly and unscrupulously on xenophobia, which is never far below the surface of most Persians, unquote. Which is to say that it played on the average Iranian's frustration and deep distrust of the British, and that the National Front would be hugely popular in the USA, given that we're similarly xenophobic when it comes to foreigners buying off national resources. The first thing that Mossadegh does as the head of the National Front is to set up a parliamentary committee with himself at the head to consider and then rule on the supplementary agreement offered by the AIOC. Nobody had any illusions of how kindly the National Front would take to the agreement, and from here on in, it's Mossadegh against the British. Uh, your name is Mr. Downer. Mr. Downer, yes. And may I ask what you were doing in Aberdeen? Well, I was running all the mechanical equipment operating in the whole of Aberdeen areas and South uh, Kurdistan. How long have you been out there, sir? Well, I've been out in my last period two years. I see, but you've been out there a long time altogether, haven't you? Well, I've been in, uh, actually, Iraq and uh, Persia for the last 31 years. Ah, oh, well, now you're just the man I want, because I'd like to know what you think about this. Well, I think it's rather a pity. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons is that... Uh, Persians uh, cannot uh, run their refinery, all their oil uh, distribution, without British technicians at all. Quite certain about that, are you? Oh, I'm absolutely certain. On a 100% basis, it's just impossible. Coming into 1950 and getting ready for the run to the summer of 1953, there are a few more names that you should know. The first is the new British ambassador, who will arrive in Tehran in April 1950. His name was Sir Francis Shepherd, and up to that point he had served exclusively in countries run either by local autocrats or under the domination of colonial powers. 
El Salvador, Haiti, Peru, the Belgian Congo, and the Dutch East Indies. He was used to protecting British interests in league with her colonial sisters, or with the brutal puppets of their choosing, and his attitude and tactics would not become more conciliatory in Iran. In early 1951, Britain's Labour Party Prime Minister, Clement Attlee, appointed a new foreign secretary, the equivalent of our Secretary of State. His name was Herbert Morrison, and he was a longtime Labour Party functionary with no international experience. His socialist sympathies did not extend abroad, and almost his first suggestion in his new post was to send British troops to occupy its sphere of influence in Iran to shore up the AIOC's bargaining position. In contrast, on the American side, we have Dean Acheson, Secretary of State under Truman, and one of the few characters in this story determined to bring things to a rational and nonviolent compromise. Acheson's man in Iran was a guy named George McGee. He'd studied geology in the U.S. and then gone to Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship. He turned down a job with the AIOC, started his own oil company in the United States, and made enough money that when Acheson called him up to be a special envoy to Iran and the AIOC, he could work for no pay. On his own initiative in 1950, seeing that the supplemental agreement was not going to fly, George McGee made a trip to London to try to stave off a disaster. In meetings with the chairman of the company, Sir William Fraser, the British told McGee that they would be making no concessions to the Iranians. From Kinzer, quote, One penny more and the company goes broke, said the chairman. That astonishing piece of mendacity made clear to McGee that more talks were fruitless, unquote. And McGee would go on to work on the behalf of the United States and the Iranians more or less entirely in opposition to the intransigent British. Now the last name you should know is Ayatollah Abdul Sayed Qasem Kashani, or Kashani for short. From a Bahamian, quote, Ayatollah Kashani was the most prominent cleric active in politics. Better known for political activities than theological standing, Kashani ignored the advice given to all clerics by the Grand Ayatollah, the paramount theologian in Iran, to shun politics, unquote. Kashani commanded a large, motivated following among conservative and anti-communist Muslims, and had ties to the Fedayeen a Islam, the devotees of Islam who had tried to assassinate the Shah in 1949. Kashani started out as Mossadegh's ally and a member of the National Front, but the British noted early on that he and his sons were both venal and easily bribed, and he would have several different roles to play before the end. Most of 1950 was taken up by the AIOC and the rest of our characters jockeying for position and opposing each other over the supplemental agreement, which, remember, was a minute improvement over the same raw deal that the British and the Anglo-Iranian oil company had been giving the Iranians since the original Darcy concession in 1901. In the interest of bringing the unpopular revision to a vote, the British intrigued with the Shah in the summer of 1950 to make General Ali Razmara the new prime minister. Razmara was the chief of staff of the armed forces at the time, and had served under the U.S. General Schwarzkopf during his military mission in the war years. Razmara was working for the British, but he was also an Iranian, and, now, a politician, who wanted to build a future in his own country. And he knew that if he kept trying to move forward a measure that was deeply unpopular with the people, at a moment when the British and any foreign power was likewise on the outs, he was done for. So he told the British that he could get the agreement passed, but only if they agreed to improve it a little, opening the AIOC's finances up to review by auditors, training Iranians for the managerial positions from which they had been excluded, and making some of its annual royalty payments, a tiny cut of profits, in advance, as a show of good faith. From Kinzer, quote, Much to Razmara's dismay, the British rejected his offer out of hand, 
Ambassador Shepard told him the company's offer was final, and the only sweetener it would accept was perhaps free medical treatment of certain hysterical deputies who continued to denounce the supplemental agreement, unquote. Rosmar's offer was to prove the last and best opportunity for the AIOC to extend its concession for relatively minor improvements without recourse to coarser methods than negotiation. The company, of course, did not take it. On the 25th of November, 1950, without Rasmar's proposed additions to take the edge off the supplemental agreement, Mossadegh brought the treaty to a vote in his oil committee in the parliament. To a man, the deputies voted the supplemental agreement down, and while they did not mention nationalization at the time, everybody knew it was now on the table. Now, most Americans aren't too familiar with nationalization as a concept or as a practice. In the context we're in now of the decolonizing world, it's usually a question of a country's natural resources being in the hands of a foreign power or foreign company. This can happen as it did in Iran by way of a concession, or the way it did in Latin America, where colonial governments or post-colonial autocracies invited foreign investment in exchange for favorable tax and labor arrangements. The end result was usually what we're seeing in Iran, the extraction and sale of those natural resources with little or no benefit to the country in question. And in Iran, as in Guatemala and to this day in the oil-richer parts of North Africa, with the company or foreign power operating in a kind of state within a state, failing to train or pay locals, exempt from local law, and interfering with the state's politics. The response, nationalization, is the takeover of those resources, either by creating a state company or by engineering a takeover by local businessmen. In some cases, the company or foreign power has to accept whatever compensation is offered. This is what happened in Mexico when Lázaro Cárdenas nationalized oil under Pemex in 1938. The U.S., the U.K., and the Dutch were too preoccupied with what was happening in Europe to do anything more than boycott. In most other cases, as in Guatemala, things wouldn't go as smoothly for the natives. It's hard for us in the U.S. to imagine a situation in which we'd want to nationalize something. It's the good luck of the colonizers that they don't usually end up colonized. But you can look at American reactions to the Japanese and then the Chinese buying land in Manhattan and extrapolate that were all of American coal or American oil or American farmland in foreign hands, nationalization would be the popular and patriotic position here. One situation in which it might be easier to imagine an American nationalization is in telecommunications. Pretty much everyone in the U.S. who doesn't have access to Google Fiber knows that internet access in this country is terrible. Our rates are higher than almost anywhere in the developed world, and our speeds and penetration lower than everywhere else. Likewise, huge regional monopolies mean that depending on where you live, you've only got one provider. Whether it's Verizon or Comcast or Time Warner, and no matter how bad their service and support are, and they are universally terrible, you've got no alternative option, no competitor that you can turn to. The country that invented the internet now has a worse version than anybody else, and a nationwide grid that was supposed to be upgraded to fiber optics decades ago is still run on copper cable. Some places like Kansas City have been rescued by another mega corporation, but the rest of us suffer what we must while the strong do what they will. Not only that, but the immense wealth that the telecom companies have acquired through their monopolies is allowing them to throw money into our politics in order to further secure their positions and to attack what's left of the good internet by attempting to torpedo net neutrality. Not that we'll ever see it, but the U.S. telecom companies are ripe for another kind of nationalization, where a government nationalizes its own industries because it can run them better or more efficiently. It's a kind of nationalization that we can imagine, and it was the kind that the government of Great Britain had actually just gone through in the 1950s. 
Clement Attlee, who came to the British Prime Ministership at the head of a Labour government in 1945, ran on promises to nationalize underperforming sectors of the British economy. In 1946, it was the Bank of England, later the National Health Service, the electric utility, cable and wireless, the railroads, sea freight, and gas and steel, all from 1946 to 1951. From the Cambridge History of Iran, quote, In Great Britain, there was now a labor government with its own large-scale program of nationalization. Nevertheless, the Iranian moves against the AIOC provoked great concern and resentment in London, where Mossadegh's moves were regarded, especially among conservatives, as being both an expropriation of a great imperial asset and a national humiliation. In the harsh circumstances of the post-war years, access to cheap oil and the ability to earn foreign currency through its resale abroad were matters of prime concern to the British government, which also derived more tax revenue from the AIOC than the Iranian government earned in royalty payments. Whatever the justice of the Iranian case, not even a labor government was willing or politically able to back down." Unquote. گر کافر و گبر و بود پرستی باز باز In the early days of 1951, Iranian nationalists called a mass rally in Tehran to support the cause of nationalization. That the first set of speakers came from the National Front was predictable enough, but the follow-up was a series of mullahs and ayatollahs laying out the case that a Shiite Muslim's duty was to support nationalization. The Shah's father's secularizing agenda had turned the ulama into the natural allies of the National Front and Shiism's long history as a particularly Iranian religion made them natural nationalists as well, especially in opposing the atheist Russians or the colonizing missionary British. General Razmara, the prime minister, continued doggedly working at the Majlis in the interest of the supplemental agreement into the new year, despite British refusal to sweeten the deal. On the third day of March, he spoke directly to Mossadegh's committee, defending the deal and laying out the consequences of potential nationalization. Later that day, British Ambassador Shepard wrote a long cable home claiming that he'd written almost the entirety of Rasmara's speech. Secretary Morrison, the new Labour Foreign Secretary, put together a working party on Persia to coordinate the handling of what looked like it was about to become a crisis, bringing together high-level people from the Foreign Office, the Admiralty, and the Bank of England, and the newly nationalized Ministry of Fuel and Power. They commissioned several studies, one of which Kinzer quotes in his book, and which lays out pretty clearly the British opinion of the Iranian antagonists. Quote, The typical Persian is motivated by an unabashed dishonesty, a fatalistic outlook, and an indifference to suffering. The ordinary Persian is vain, unprincipled, eager to promise what he knows is incapable, or he has no intention of performing, wedded to procrastination, lacking in perseverance and energy, but amenable to discipline. Above all, he enjoys intrigue and readily turns to prevarication and dishonesty, whenever there is a possibility of personal gain. Although an accomplished liar, he does not expect to be believed. He easily acquires a superficial knowledge of technical subjects, deluding himself into the belief that it is profound." Unquote. Much of that's unadulterated racism, and some of it's a little bit more interesting. 
If the British diplomats found Iranians dishonest and fatalistic, might it be that it was because the British had been arranging things in that country behind the scenes for almost a century and then presenting them as fates accompli to the Iranian people? And might Iranians be treating their technical knowledge as profound in order to win the right to hold any position higher than welder within the AIOC? And what Iranian, knowing the British, would then treat the British with openness and honesty? But that's only if the report had any basis in experience or actual truth. Because it reads like pretty much any colonial assessment of Eastern character read from the bits of Herodotus' histories on the Persians up to Edward Said tearing the genre apart in Orientalism. On March 7th, another mass rally in favor of nationalization took place in the streets of Tehran, again with support from the National Front and the ulama. I want to make clear, too, that these rallies really ramped up the tension for the Shah and the guys in favor of the supplemental agreement in the Majlis. It's easy, especially right now in the United States, where huge rallies and protests are taking place daily without any apparent effect on the Trump administration or its legislator allies, to imagine most politicians as insulated from the mob, as able to ignore it. But unlike the United States, although Iran had other cities, Tehran was the city. It held a huge proportion of the country's population. It was the living space of almost all of its legislators, the seat of all of its industry headquarters, and it wasn't geographically that big. When these rallies packed tens, or later even hundreds of thousands, into the squares in front of the Shah's palaces and the parliament, they were a visceral, physical reminder to the monarch and the deputies that if it was not now, the government could very soon be much beholden to the people. And on the morning of that same day, March 7th, an assassin from the Fedayeen Islam, the devotees of Islam, the same group that had tried to assassinate the Shah, gunned down Prime Minister and General Ali Razmara as he left a mosque. Like the attempt on the Shah's life, this was blamed not on the Fedayeen, but on the Tuda, and it was another ominous sign that the politicization of Islam in Iran was poised to take a radical turn. I've said it before, but when you involve religion in your politics, as the Shah tried to do throughout the 30s, and as the National Front and Kashani were now doing in favor of nationalization and nationalism, it's only a matter of time before the clergy and the laymen begin involving politics in their religion. That's how we've gotten to the point where guys like Steve Bannon are in the White House, authorizing bans on Muslims right now, and it's how the Shiite ulama would shortly be making their own changes at the top of the Iranian state. In any case, Razmar's assassination turned up the heat in Iran, and made sure that any potential British stooges would be even less willing to fight for the supplemental agreement and against nationalization of the oil industry. The Tuda was also looking to make a resurgence through support of nationalization. In the previous year, 1950, the AIOC had fired 800 workers, closed a plant in Kerman Shah, and reduced the housing it provided in Abadan, inflaming the feelings of the two-to-run union movement. The company followed up by making a series of cuts to employees' pay and benefits, along with a massive 8,000-man layoff, saying that labor costs had become exorbitant, which was an incredible claim since most of the AIOC's labor was contracted at less than the already low minimum wage. From Abrahamian, quote, The company's chief manager in Koram Shar warned superiors that such short-sighted, penny-wise, and pound-foolish cuts would provide fuel to the opposition, especially the Tuda. Britannic House, the London headquarters of the company, he wrote, needed to learn some lessons from this experience. The Foreign Office later wrote that some local managers had deemed these cost-cutting decisions from above as ill-timed and ill-advised, and had thrown up their hands in horror. In discussing the situation with the Americans, the Foreign Office wrote, It is embarrassing that we should have to speak thus to the State Department, but it is no use hiding the facts. End quote. 
The Tuna waited until April of 1951, after Razmara's death, but before the Majlis and the Shah had settled on a new prime minister, to launch a strike. At its height, the work stoppage included more than 50,000 workers in the oil fields, the workshops, the docks, and the Abadan refinery. They virtually took over the island of Abadan, chasing out the British population and occupying their living spaces. Despite the army sending in tanks, armored cars, and truckloads of soldiers, the strikers would not give in, figuring that the longer they held out, the more they'd be helping the push towards nationalization. A Tudor proclamation from the strike read, quote, Workers are fined, discharged, and disgraced. They are, due to lack of proper accommodation, struggling with slow death in their mud and paper huts. Our peasants and farmers have been deprived of their possessions due to the tyrannies of big proprietors and landlords, who are directly supported by the oil industry. For this plundering, the company has accomplices in the name of king, minister, deputy, and governor-general. The British consul travels about and gives instructions to the governor-generals and the head of the government offices. The king is also a servant of the imperialists." Unquote. The strike would not end until the 25th of April, when Mohammed Mossadegh finished pushing a proposal for the nationalization of the AIOC through his oil committee in the Majlis. Oil again poses a threat to peace, and the Middle East again becomes a trouble spot, as Iran's vast petroleum reserves arouse nationalists following seizure by the Iranian government of the British-operated refineries and distribution facilities. Demonstrations at the huge oil port of Abadan culminate in the tearing down of signs over company offices and the raising of the Iranian flag over the installation. Desperate mediation efforts are made as Britain appeals to the International Court in The Hague. Razmara's death, Mossadegh's bill, and the Tuta strike had pushed the situation in Tehran to a crisis, and the British scrambled to find another candidate they might put into the prime minister's seat to see their interest through the storm. They settled on Syed Zia, a parliamentary politician since the Constitutional Revolution and an eager recipient of British bribes. On the 27th of April, when Zia's name came up for debate in the Majlis, Mossadegh sat silent. A deputy on the British payroll, emboldened that Mossadegh had stayed sitting rather than deliver one of his famously eloquent diatribes, stood to speak. Rather than mentioning Zia, he tore into Mossadegh and his oil committee's proposals and taunted, if you wanted a real challenge, Mossadegh ought to try being prime minister himself. After a long moment, Mossadegh stood up and replied that if the Majlis wanted to offer him the job, he'd gladly take it. A near riot broke out on the floor, a formal motion was made in his favor, and by the end of the day, Mohammad Mossadegh was the Prime Minister of Iran, by a vote of 79 to 12. From Stephen Kinzer, quote, Sensing the power he held at that moment, Mossadegh said that he would serve only if the Majlis also voted to approve an act he'd drawn up to implement the nationalization of Anglo-Iranian. Under its provisions, a parliamentary committee would audit Anglo-Iranian's books, weigh the claims of both sides for compensation, begin sending Iranians abroad to learn the skills of running an oil industry, and draw up articles of incorporation for a new national Iranian oil company. The Majlis approved it unanimously that very afternoon, unquote. Mossadegh took the moderate step of making his cabinet, according to the foreign office, right-wing, or even monarchist. But at the same time, he ensured that the deputies who made it to the mixed commission that would handle the nationalization and run the new NIOC were loyal and committed members of the National Front. 
Mossadegh initiated nationalization on May Day, 1951, and by the 10th of June, the NIOC had taken over Anglo-Iranian's headquarters in Koramshar. Nehru of India and Lázaro Cárdenas of Mexico were the first world leaders to send their congratulations. I keep saying this is the point when, but this was the point when. From Abrahamian, quote, nationalization initiated a zero-sum struggle. For Mossadegh and Iran, nationalization meant national sovereignty, and national sovereignty meant control over the exploration, extraction, and exportation of oil. For Britain and the AIOC, nationalization meant the exact opposite. It meant loss of control over the same oil. Political conflicts usually leave some room for compromise. This left little such. Either control had to be in the hands of Iran, as Mossadegh insisted, or, as Britain equally adamantly insisted, control should remain in its own hands, or, at least, out of Iranian ones. If the struggle had been over profit-sharing, compromise could have been reached, unquote. But it could not in this case. In his book on the coup, Abrahamian runs through a survey of most every historian who has tackled the issue, including Kinzer, and he tears down every one of them that lays the blame for what happens next on either Iran in general or on Mossadegh in particular. Because Abrahamian sees this as the inflection point, where things have already gone too far, and rather than being out on a limb with nationalization, Mossadegh is just articulating what's become the clear national will. Britain and Iran are on a collision course, and it's impossible for Mossadegh to do anything less than nationalize. You might get the impression, as I imagine everybody who listens to this cast must get the impression, that I've lost sight of the point. Safe for Democracies about the U.S., and I've been talking for over an hour, including the last episode, about the British and the Iranians. But this is where we come back into the picture. Because we're faced with an Iran that will stop at nothing less than nationalization, and Britain that has to this point been implacable in its determination to hold on to its last imperial jewel. And the U.S. at this point has sympathy with both sides. It understands, as the British do, that oil is of paramount importance in the light of what was shaping up to be a Cold War, and it knows that a nationalized industry will provide less oil less securely than having the U.K. run the show. But at the same time, Truman must have been looking back to the last U.S. president who tied it up after a world war, and remembering Wilson's stand on national self-determination and the 14 points. You have to remember, too, that in 1951, Truman and Dean Acheson were just through setting up the UN and the end to colonialism and imperialism that it was supposed to stand for. Not only that, but in a time when the U.S. was looking uncomfortably at becoming an empire, versus nowadays when it's become so natural that we forget we are one, the men in Washington would have had some kind of soft spot for a country that had emerged from the dark days into parliamentary democracy and not into communism. So there was a choice to be made between these parties and how to handle the situation. And there are those, especially in the field of international politics, who will tell you that morality has nothing to do with the foreign policy decisions that a state makes. Everything is done in a clear-eyed spirit of realism, in the defense of power or of relative power or position, and that the U.S.'s only choice was to side with the British to defend its supply of oil in the post-war world, that allowing Iranian nationalization would encourage other national movements and destabilize supply. That's one way to see it. But all decisions are moral decisions, and abdicating moral responsibility in the interest of realism doesn't remove the morality at the heart of the question. What's becoming one of the contentions of this podcast is that when the U.S. has chosen to act immorally, in the interest of steely realism, not only have the consequences been disastrous and tragic for the victims of those decisions, they've backfired on the U.S. 
We've got a lot of ground to cover yet before we get to Iran under the Shah in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and the blowback from the Iranian Revolution in 1979. But now is the time to start thinking seriously about the role that we play, the motives behind it, and the way it's tended to work out for us over the last 70 years. One of his rare appearances, Mohammad Mossadegh, Premier of Iran, meets the press to reaffirm his government's unwillingness to arbitrate with Britain over nationalizing the Anglo-Iranian oil company. With chances of a settlement fading, the West's best hope is that this sickly man, in whose frail hands may lie the key to peace, is as anti-Russian as he is anti-British. In any case, the British response to the fact of nationalization in Iran had at the outset two components. The first was more or less to wait and see. They were convinced, despite all evidence to the contrary, that Mossadegh's popularity would crumble and that whatever government the Shah and themselves could put together afterwards would be more than amenable to returning to the status quo ante. The second component was to convince the United States to side unequivocally with the AIOC and leave the Iranians out to dry. The British began telling elements of the Iranian government at this point that they'd be willing to talk about more substantive changes to the supplemental agreement, like a 50-50 split in profits. They likewise floated the idea of accepting nationalization in principle while maintaining control over operations, which is pretty much meaningless. Unfortunately for them, they had already let the situation come to a head, and because of decades of bad faith calculations of profits and royalties, had no reserve of trust with which to bargain. On the convincing the Americans side of things, from Abrahamian, quote, The British government instructed its Washington embassy both to publicize the AIOC case and to impress upon Americans that unbridled and irresponsible nationalism posed grave danger for the Western powers. For this nationalism is not based on any real national fervor, willing to accept unlimited discipline, sacrifice, and labor, but is an attempt by the ruling class to divert attention from their own shortcomings by ascribing all ills to foreign domination." In effect, the foreign office was accusing Mossadegh of being the kind of populist he wasn't, of being the kind of populist that has dominated the American South since independence, a populist who uses a scapegoat to trick the people into working against their own interests. Mossadegh, on the other hand, was using a scapegoat that was actually responsible for problems in Iran and advocating actions that would alleviate said problems at the expense of the scapegoat, the exact opposite of what the Foreign Office was suggesting. The other thing to note is that when Abrahamian says that the Foreign Office directed its D.C. embassy to publicize, he doesn't mean to the government. He means that the embassy was being directed to run an anti-Iranian propaganda campaign in the American press, which, it turns out, is something they were really good at. To the State Department, the British started selling the idea that if Iran were allowed to nationalize, they would run operations below capacity, reducing the amount of oil available in the West, emphasizing how much it would cripple their war machine if similar attitudes and actions spread to the rest of the Middle East. The British knew that our chief fear was the Soviet Union and the burgeoning Cold War, and that's the tune they played. The British weren't only propagandizing in the U.S., though. They'd run newspapers in Iran since a press came into existence there, And long before they had formulated plans for violently unseating Mossadegh, they were paying whoever they could in the country to denounce him, the NIOC, nationalization, and to write articles, demonstrate, and make speeches in the Majlis. Now, Abrahamian believes that the U.S. was side-by-side with the British in opposition to nationalization, whereas Kinzer seems to think that the U.S. only made a firm decision under Eisenhower. What's clear to me is that the U.S. certainly would have preferred to avoid nationalization under the Truman administration. 
Dean Acheson's guy in Iran, George McGee, wrote in a memo at the time, quote, Both we and the British very much wanted to avoid nationalization of the AIOC concession. This would be bad for AIOC and bad for Iran. It would jeopardize oil concessions held by the U.S., the U.K., and other firms around the world, unquote. The difference between the U.S. and British positions while Truman was still in office is pretty clear, though. As much as the U.S. stood to benefit from AIOC remaining in Iran, McGee and Acheson kept pushing for a compromise short of nationalization that was favorable towards Iran to end the crisis, whereas the British were from the first in favor of undermining Mossadegh's government illegally and finding a premier who would bow to British pressure and take whatever shitty deal they happened to be offering. Both the U.S. and the U.K. governments were under pressure from the Seven Sisters, the massive European and American companies that controlled pretty much all the hydrocarbons in the world until the formation of OPEC. From a Foreign Office memo on their position, quote, The chairman of Shell has asked to meet Fraser, the chairman of the AOC, for a joint meeting to form a joint position. Other companies are, of course, deeply interested in Persian developments, since these might have serious effects on their intentions in other parts of the world. Apart from there, the unilateral termination of productive concessions is a serious matter which might have adverse effects in other spheres besides oil, e.g. Chilean nitrate, Palestinian potash, etc. He takes a grave view of the Persian situation. His company have an interest in Kuwait and in the Iraq Petroleum Company, as well as their very large interest in Venezuela. The Sheikh of Kuwait has already demanded 50-50, and the Venezuelan government is taking an unhealthy interest in the developments in Persia. The American companies, particularly in the Gulf, are also very disturbed." Unquote. Living in late-stage capitalist societies where corporate interests are the order of the day, all of that sounds reasonable enough to us. Of course we'd want to preserve and protect the resources in which these companies have invested. But imagine if the situation were reversed. Oil companies from five different Latin American nations and another five African nations have established large concessions in the United States, coal in Appalachia and out west, oil in Texas and Alaska, and fracking across the Midwest. Imagine that each of these companies ran their concessions like armed camps, exploiting American labor and paying what's clearly a fraudulent amount in taxes. When somebody proposed that maybe American resources should belong to the American people, the companies have them jailed, in collusion with the U.S. government. Would you be ready to rally behind someone who'd said, fuck those guys? And would you admit not only that it would feel good to push them out, but that it would, under the circumstances, be morally right? Of course you would. Mr. Hazard, I guess you have the one answer to this uh, problem of the oil refinery. Will you tell us what it is? Well, I don't know whether I have the one answer to it, but I have my own answer to it. Let's have it. That uh, we should have taken the refinery by force and, and run our refinery on Iraq oil and Kuwait oil. Well, that sounds a full-blooded idea. How would you have said about it? Well, we'd have had to put the troops in, obviously. Yes. And what have you done about the refinery? We'd have run it. In June of 1951, the French-educated engineer Mossadegh had appointed as the managing director of the National Iranian Oil Company, Mehdi Barzagan, takes over operations at Abadan, while his assistants do the same at Khorram Shar. While the British had made some effort to cover things up, from Kinzer, quote, enough papers were left behind to make it easy for Mossadegh to prove that AIOC had interfered with all aspects of Iranian political life. The documents revealed that the company had influenced senators, Majlis deputies, and former cabinet ministers, and that those who had opposed it had been subtly forced out of office. Newspapers had been paid to publish articles alleging that many of the National Front's leaders were actually paid stooges of AIOC." Unquote. This was another bump for Mossadegh's popularity in Iran and against that of the already reviled British. 
You might ask why, given that British intrusion into Iranian politics was a given by that point. And the answer is that confirmation and exposure always makes a difference. Like the difference between suspecting the Russians influenced an election and having the entire intelligence community confirm it. The British, in response to the takeover of the refinery, ordered its tankers to pump as much as they could out of the island and leave it dry. The UK then took two other steps. First, it prohibited the export of key commodities, including sugar and steel, to Iran, and made every effort to extend those sanctions as far as British influence would take them. They froze Iranian accounts in British banks and pulled all of their staff from the refinery, and they put pressure on every ally and acquaintance they had to prevent Iranians from coming to learn technical skills, and to deny visas to Europeans or Americans seeking to work in the oil industry in Iran. In addition to the de facto sanctions, the UK launched a complaint against the Iranian government on behalf of the AAOC in the World Court in The Hague. In the brief they submitted to the court, the British acknowledged that nations have the right to nationalize industries related to their national resources. They had to, since the UK had just nationalized several major industries. But they said that Iran had violated international law in three ways. From Abrahamian, quote, First, Iran had unilaterally canceled a duly signed international contract, the 1933 oil agreement, stipulating that under no conditions could one party cancel a concession, and that, if one had complaints, it was obliged to seek arbitration and revision. Second, it had discriminated against and targeted only British property. And third, it had failed to offer fair compensation, unquote. A couple of things here. First is that the British are happy to go to The Hague, one of the oldest international institutions we still have, and plead piously the cause of international law, while at the same time violating it in the Persian Gulf. Second, as Abrahamian points out, the British have already figured out what they were going to propose as fair conversation, which was the entire expected profits of the concession for the rest of the original contract, which was 42 years. They'd extrapolated that out to over £2 billion sterling. After using a couple of sites that calculate historical inflation using the CPI, it looks like that comes out to $76 billion in change today, which for a country that at the time was as poor as anything is a lot of money. The British, and this is what their case really hinged on, claimed that the court had jurisdiction because His Majesty's government was party to the 1933 agreement. That claim rested on three premises. First, that the UK had the right to represent all of its citizens and their interests abroad, since it was the diplomatic protector of them. That's not totally out of left field, but it would be like if somebody in Mexico sued McDonald's because they'd been burned by the coffee, the Mexican court awarded damages, and then the US government countersued the country of Mexico at The Hague. The second premise is that there was a representative of the League of Nations at the 1933 negotiations which seems like a pretty odd argument, and the court didn't end up addressing it in its eventual decision. And then, the third and most important premise, from Abrahamian again, quote, A confidential note added, We are unable to accept contention that the issue does not concern His Majesty's government. Oil industry is of vital importance to HMG, not only as a main source of revenue, but also as providing funds for essential economic development. It is of great importance in the economy of the UK and the free world generally, unquote. That is, we need you to recognize that you have jurisdiction because we really need you to. The problem, of course, is that the best reason to consider the UK a party to the 1933 agreement is if the UK was actually, as in the documents, a party to the agreement, and it was not. The UK had been trying to have it both ways, using a new style of capitalist imperialism, where it was the company and not the country doing the exploitation, 
and here in The Hague they were coming up against the limits of that method. For its part, from Abrahamian again, quote, the Iranian government countered that the world court had no jurisdiction since the dispute was not between two states but between a sovereign state and a private company. Iran, as a sovereign state, had the right to nationalize its own resources, and it repeated an offer to pay fair compensation. It also argued that the 1933 agreement was invalid because it had been forced on the country, because the country had been dominated by a dictator, and because the company itself had failed to abide by the terms of the same agreement, unquote. Which, since we know all of that is true, makes for a pretty good argument. Both the Iranians and the British would have to wait until 1952 for the court to hand down a decision, and in the meantime, things progressed. In addition to the freezing of Iranian assets and the impromptu sanctions, the British stopped paying the AIC's royalties and threatened to detain any tanker leaving an Iranian port with quote-unquote stolen petroleum. Between them, the Seven Sisters controlled most of the world's 1,500 or so oil tankers, while the USSR had only 10, and the UK felt pretty confident about its ability to prevent Iranian exports. While it became quickly apparent that the NIOC had enough skilled workers and Iranian managers to produce more than enough oil for domestic consumption, and to export some on the side, the British blockade ensured that oil revenues plummeted, and export-ready petroleum and crude never made it into tankers. On the 19th of July, 1951, with the sanctions in full swing and apparently having their desired effect, Clement Attlee's government shelved plans for an invasion of Iran that the Working Party had drawn up and that British Ambassador Shepard had championed. With military action for the moment out of the picture, the UK redoubled its efforts to get the US publicly on board against nationalization. The US ambassador in Tehran, Henry Grady, cabled home to warn that if the US did so, it would take on much of the opprobrium in Iran, then directed at the British. From Kinzer, quote, In an anguished cable, Grady warned Truman that Iran was in a most explosive situation, and reported for the first time that Britain was looking for ways to overthrow Mossadegh. Quoting the cable now, the British, led by Foreign Secretary Herbert Morrison, seemed to be determined to follow the old tactics of getting the government out with which it has difficulties, he wrote. Mossadegh has the backing of 95 to 98% of the people in this country. It is utter folly to try to push him out, unquote and unquote. It's memos like these that make me disagree with Abrahamian, who sees the positions of the Truman and Eisenhower administrations as at best superficially different and at worst exactly the same. Here you can see the Americans under Truman, when they're still dubious about the mantle of being the world's policemen, being so perceptive. Grady knows that the only thing we get by joining with the UK is bad feeling. Once Eisenhower arrives and we're warming up to the idea of a new style of American empire and the international responsibilities that go with it, there's a sea change and we start showing off the same naivete and hard-headedness as the British. Their mission fruitless, the Anglo-Iranian oil delegation, led by Mr. Jackson, returns to London as Persia gives the company's employees one week to decide whether to stay and work for Persia. Invited to negotiate, the delegates flew to Tehran. What happened is told by Mr. Jackson as Pressman asked for news about the oil position. Almost immediately at the outset, we were asked to accept the Persian law as it stands. I replied that we could not do that, that we would recognize a form of nationalization provided we could work out a satisfactory agreement under a form of nationalization. We the U.S. response to nationalization was somewhat different from the U.K.'s. From Kinzer, quote, British officials were baffled by what they saw as the Truman administration's refusal to agree that Britain should benefit from the work that it had done in foreign countries. 
What seemed like rapacious imperialism to the Americans seemed only common sense to the British. The British Undersecretary for Fuel and Power wrote in a memo, and quoting the memo now, It was British enterprise, skill, and effort which discovered oil under the soil of Persia, which has got the oil out, which has built the refinery, which has developed markets for Persian oil in 30 or 40 countries, with wharves, storage tanks, and pumps, road and rail tanks, and other distribution facilities, and also an immense fleet of tankers. This was done when there was no easy outlet for Persian oil in competition with the vastly greater American industry. None of these things would or could have been done by the Persian government or the Persian people. Unquote and unquote. That's a typical laying out of the British position, but American policymakers at the time were astute enough to pick it apart. No, the Persians didn't do it themselves. Their country had been under virtual British domination for decades at the time of the Darcy concession, and continued to be afterwards. The stuff about competition with the American oil industry is meant to flatter the U.S., but it's pure fluff. The entire world's oil industry grew up in the shadow of American competition. And that the British constructed much infrastructure is true, but it's hardly heroic. It was done at a profit, for a profit, and it's exactly what anyone controlling Iranian oil, the Iranians included, would have done, given the opportunity. On the 31st of May, a month after Mossadegh announced nationalization, Truman sent the British Prime Minister, Clement Attlee, a telegram telling him that he needed to negotiate with the Iranians. The British had already decided that they wouldn't be doing that, but the telegram convinced the British government that it needed to appear to be negotiating, which explains all of its half-hearted efforts to come to the table with Mossadegh over the next two years. On the 15th of July, don't worry too much about these dates, Truman sends Avril Harriman, a millionaire businessman and former Secretary of Commerce, as his special envoy to Iran to get the lay of the land and to see if he could get Mossadegh to commit to working on a compromise. Harriman's reports home were telling as to the situation on the ground. In his own words, quote, In spite of the fact that the British consider oil interest in Iran their greatest overseas asset, no minister has visited Iran as far as I can find out, except Churchill and Eden on wartime business. Oil company directors have rarely come. Situation that has developed is tragic example of absentee management combined with worldwide growth of nationalism in underdeveloped countries. There is no doubt Iranians are ready to make sacrifices in oil income to be rid of what they consider to be British colonial practices. Large groups are in mood to face any consequences to achieve this objective. It is clear that British reporting and recommendations from here have not been realistic, and it seems essential that member of British government find out for himself what is going on, unquote. Uh, I know that letter sounded a little stilted. Uh, it's because it was a telegram and not because I can't read good. So you know. Harriman toured the facilities in the oil fields in at Abadan and was horrified by the living conditions and the colonial arrangements, both in terms of British luxury and racial segregation that had been set up on the island. But while Harriman got a good idea of what British reports had been leaving out, the other half of his mission, negotiating with Mossadegh, was less of a success. Harriman tried to impress on the Iranian prime minister, with facts and figures, that Iran would not be able to bring production up to full capacity and the effects that would have on Iran and the world market and the fight against Soviet communism. Mossadegh, to Harriman's great frustration, kept bringing the discussion around from economic and industrial specifics to political and philosophical generalities. From Kinzer, quote, Mossadegh's talks with Harriman did not falter because of Mossadegh's negotiating style or his failure to grasp the intricacies of the oil industry. The real reason was the fundamental difference in the way that the two men perceived the dispute. To Harriman, it was a matter of practicalities, a set of technical challenges that could be resolved by rational analysis, discussion, and compromise. Mossadegh saw it from an entirely different perspective. 
He believed that Iran was at the sublime moment of liberation. Details about refinery management or tanker capacity seemed to him laughably irrelevant at such a moment." Unquote. Abrahamian takes the view that Harriman was just the next step in a joint British and American effort to retain control of the oil industry in Iran and elsewhere, and to some extent that's certainly true. But I don't think anybody has to be negotiating in bad faith here. Avril Harriman was almost certainly prejudiced, with a skewed view of Iran, and probably really believed that Iranians couldn't run their own shop, and that everybody would be better off with the company effectively in British hands. And whereas Mossadegh, in the Americans' accounts of these meetings, was stubborn and intractable, it's not that he was incapable or even uninterested in the ins and outs of the oil business, it's that he could already see that the NIOC was running the Abadan refinery, and knew at the time that with a few more years' experience, they'd be back up to capacity. More than that, he was past the numbers. This was about sovereignty and the future of the Iranian people. I think they were talking past each other more than anything else. At the same time, I can't deny that the communist, rather than the economic question, was weighing heavily on the minds of the Truman administration. Although Acheson and the rest would use that fear to act much more hesitantly than Eisenhower and the Dulles brothers would after them. Truman had approved the creation of the CIA back in 1947 with the ominous mandate to carry out, quote, functions and duties related to intelligence affecting national security, including sabotage, anti-sabotage, demolition and evacuation measures, subversion and assistance to underground resistance movements, guerrillas and refugee liberation movements, and support of indigenous anti-communist elements in threatened countries of the free world, unquote. By 1950, by 1950, the Truman administration would be operating on the policy of containment, more or less laid out in George Kennan's long telegram, and elaborated in the National Security Council document, NSC 68, which Dan Carlin just mentioned in his last podcast, and which held that the U.S. had to oppose communism wherever it emerged, even in countries or regions that held no vital national security interest. The assault on free institutions is worldwide now, the document concludes. And in the context of the current polarization of power, a defeat of free institutions anywhere is a defeat everywhere. Now, there's an obvious tautology in that statement. A free institution freely electing communists is then by definition not free, while a free institution suborned by the West is by definition free, even if it ends in dictatorship, because it ends up as part of the quote-unquote free world. But despite the logical contradictions at work and what seemed in hindsight to be their obvious consequences, the atmosphere of fear in the wake of the Second World War was real. From Kinzer, quote, a great sense of fear, particularly the fear of encirclement, shaped American consciousness during this period. Allied leaders who met at Potsdam two months after the end of the Second World War pledged to cooperate on a democratic and peaceful basis. But behind their generous words lay deep mistrust. Soviet power had already subdued Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. Communist governments were imposed on Bulgaria and Romania in 1946, Hungary and Poland in 1947, and Czechoslovakia in 1948. Albania and Yugoslavia had also turned to communism. Greek communists made a violent bid for power. Soviet soldiers blocked land routes to Berlin for 16 months. And in 1949, the Soviet Union successfully tested a nuclear weapon. That same year, pro-Western forces in China lost their civil war to communists led by Mao. From Washington, it seemed that enemies were on the march everywhere." Unquote. In the light of what America got up to in the post-war, the tragedy of that assessment, true as it was to the atmosphere in D.C. at the time, is how little it took into account national self-determination. Albania and Yugoslavia didn't turn to communism, they elected communists. 
In Greece, the communist guerrillas who had fought the Nazis through the whole war were trying to throw off the yoke of the pseudo-fascist pro-Nazi monarch that the British had imposed on them in the post-war. It was not a communist revolution sui generis. As the U.S. was to encounter but failed to realize in Iran and Guatemala and Cuba and dozens of other countries, the presence of communist elements or socialist policies in post-colonial, nationalist, revolutionary, or democratic governments did not necessarily indicate a pro-Soviet or even an anti-U.S. position. But in all those countries, an American response prompted by containment and by fear turned potential allies into intractable enemies with more than a small chance of massacres in the process. At the time, though, that dynamic had not yet fully developed, and Truman, despite his misgivings about Mossadegh's policies and the prominence of the Tudor party in Iran, invited the prime minister to Washington. And that, suddenly, is the end of the seventh episode of SFD. I thought I'd get farther in an hour, but if you like hearing me talk as much as I do, you'll have soldiered through just fine. I've got bi- and sometimes tri-weekly content up on the blog, a weekly recap of the way our own democracy is now falling apart on Mondays and Tuesdays, and another post, sometimes related to the news, but more often exploring topics and ideas from this show in the last half of the week. That's all eh, pretty high quality, and I think it's worth giving a look. I've been playing around with turning the long posts into short little supplemental podcasts, and if that strikes anybody as something they'd like to listen to, let me know on the site or Facebook or wherever. As always, you can find the notes for this show at safefordemocracy.com, along with helpful little guides about how to rate the show, since that's what you're going to do as soon as you're done listening to it. We're safe underscore democracy on Twitter, and it's really easy to find us on the face, as they say here in Mexico. I wish I had a long list of goofy names for my producers like they do on Car Talk, but SFD is my baby. Written, researched, spoken, typed, divined, intuited, interpreted, uploaded, and websited by me right here in Zapopan, Guadalajara. Next time, we'll finally make it there. Kermit Roosevelt, Monty Woodhouse, the Dulles Brothers, and the operation that would cut us off from Iran to the present day. I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate, and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.